Let's pray as we dive in. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak through the pages of Scripture. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us today. So to that end, Holy Spirit, guide my lips as I speak to these, your beloved people. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm not much of a golfer. I don't know if some of you are. I, uh, I started golfing probably around age 11 or 12. A friend uh, got me into it. I, I received my first set of golf clubs. Actually, I don't know why I use first. I received my golf clubs when I was 13, when I finished grade 8. I still have that same set um, today. I've added, I think, two clubs, but, but they're old with bad golf technology, which that's my, no, that's not my excuse. I'm just a bad golfer. And, and I'm a fairly competitive person. Many of you maybe know that. And, and when it comes to golf, like I, I, I went a fair bit in those junior high uh, days. I could drive my bike to Fairview Golf Course, nine holes. I think it was 350. And I did newspapers, so I could afford that. I went a bunch. It didn't help much. I wasn't very good. And I'm competitive. So it's not, if I golf, it's not that I have to win. I just really hate sucking. And I do. And so, like, the reality is, I, I just, I, I don't golf. I still have the clubs. I, I haven't thrown them out yet, but uh, I haven't gone in years now. But I think it was last summer, uh, I went with Brennan to the, to the driving range. I don't know if any of you have done that. Uh, that's, that's a little more fun, right? You buy your bucket of balls, you grab your driver, and you just start uh, wailing. And, and every once in a while, lots of the shots are awful, but every once in a while, you get a hold of one, and it just, it goes, and it's kind of cool. But here's the deal. If you were to ask me, Dennis, what are you aiming at? I'm like, aiming? Like aiming to hit the ball? Just trying to... I'm just swinging away, right? Like if it goes in the air at any distance, I'm pretty like, that's all right. But, but the reality is that doesn't translate well to golf. Because in golf, you actually have to aim. And, and, and I don't. I'm, I'm just swinging away. I, I don't really care where the ball goes. I just hope it'll go somewhere. This morning as we return to Paul's letter to the Philippians and jump back into the argument that we've been making our way through since the beginning of chapter 3, uh, we will see the example of Paul's life when it comes to living as a disciple of Jesus, living the Christian life. And, and there's nothing half-baked about what Paul is aiming at. He is engaged wholeheartedly in the pursuit of Jesus. And in this text, we are called to emulate the example of of the Apostle Paul. If you're just joining us this morning, let me really quickly bring you up to speed on the letter, a reminder for those who've been with us. Uh, Paul in this letter is, is in prison in Rome. He's writing to a church uh, that he planted about 12 years earlier in Rome, in Philippi, a Roman colony. Uh, two issues primarily have motivated him to write this, two challenges going on in the church. One, internally there is some strife, some relational conflict, some things going on within the body. But externally, there's also some opposition, some suffering from outside the church. And so Paul writes to them in the first half of the letter, uh, significantly focused on the first problem, internal tension. And he called them to unity, to oneness, to stand together for the gospel, to have the mindset of Jesus, to think of the interests of others ahead of their own interests. At chapter 3, the, the, the book shifts focus. He moves on to some other matters. And he begins by saying in chapter 3, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord. And then there's this warning. Remember, talked about this almost whiplash. Rejoice in the Lord. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He warns the church about uh, Judaizers or about those who would embrace a Judaizing way of thinking, which is simply this, that 
Jesus alone, faith in Christ alone, is insufficient for salvation. Uh, if you really want to be part of God's people, you also need to observe other things. In, in their case, Jewish boundary markers, primarily uh, circumcision if you were male. And Paul will have none of that. And he goes off and he, he explains how all the things, his pedigree as a Jew, his performance as a very religious man, that he counts those as rubbish for the sake of being found in Christ, knowing Jesus. Uh, knowing Jesus on the basis of righteousness that is a gift received from God, not his own righteousness, not his own performance, but the performance of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 10 and 11, where Paul really focuses in on his goal, knowing Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so as to somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. That's where we pick things up now, verses 12 to 14. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I want to walk through this with you in, in four sections. First, the structure. Second, the metaphor. Third, the goal. And fourth, the response. The structure, the metaphor, the goal, the response. The very first thing that I want you to notice when we come to this passage is that this is not beginning a new section. It's not moving on to a new matter. Some translations actually put a significant paragraph break there with a new title. This carries on from what preceded it, uh, from what we've been walking through the last three Sundays. In fact, we could have walked through all of these verses in one shot, but there's so much there. I I've wanted to walk through it in, in smaller bites, and so that's what we've been doing. But this continues. And one thing that points to one thing that confirms that this is, is intimately connected with what we've just looked at last week and the weeks prior is the, the Greek idiom with which it begins. It, it's translated as not that. And, and that, with that, that, that phrase pushes us to understand is that what follows, what we're about to come to, is contrasting in some way to what just happened before. So, so not that. That's a, that's a major clue that this is connected. Secondly, I want you to note this, that uh, our text is comprised of two fairly balanced sentences. The NIV has broken it down into, I think, three for clarity in English. But in, in the original verse, uh, verse 12 is one sentence. And then verses 13 and 14 is a second sentence. And they are balanced. They, they're very similar. They both begin, for example, with a disclaimer. Verse 12 begins, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Verse 13 begins with this. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. So there's this disclaimer that both of those uh, verses, both of those sentences begin with. Uh, but secondly, we also recognize this balance when it comes to the main verb, because the main verb in both of those sentences is the same as well. Verse 12, but I press on. And verse 13 and 14, I press on. That's the central verse in both. And so one of the things that, why, reasons why that's important is the repetition within the text helps us interpret the text because the ordinary rules of rhetoric tells us that we can expect the second sentence to help us understand the first. So even in the first where there are some things that might not be perfectly clear, the second will help us understand what Paul is uh, all on about here. 
Let's move on to the second thing, the metaphor. The metaphor that Paul uses here. Uh, it becomes obvious in the second part, the second sentence of our text, verses 13 and 14, that Paul is employing a metaphor that dominates this passage as a whole. Uh, what is being pictured? What's being pictured is a runner. A runner running a race. Not looking back, straining towards the goal, desiring to win the prize. Some of you know that not only am I not a golfer, I'm also not a runner. But last uh, fall, I, I took the challenge of doing a 10K run to raise money for Teen Challenge. And so about six or seven weeks before that, I started to train, started running short ways and building myself up. Eventually, I got to about 6K, and I could do it and not die. And I thought, okay, this is all right. When it gets to the day of the run, I'm going to be able to push through those last 4K. I'll be able to do this. And... Uh, and because of COVID, I had planned my own route, and, I, and you, you might remember that Doug and Nancy were willing to host the end in their yard so that we could gather as a church those who wanted to come and pray for Teen Challenge and celebrate that accomplishment. And, and the one thing that I did not factor in, well, several things, but uh, I had always run at night when it was cool. That was a, a sunny afternoon. But the last kilometer to their house was actually uphill, not, not a steep incline, but, but after nine kilometers, it felt like a mountain. And, and so when I read this about straining towards the goal, like I go back there, right? Paul is describing, he's using the metaphor of a run, a, a runner, straining, pressing on. Like, I get that. Of course, Paul is using this metaphor not to, because he's not, he's not really speaking about running a race. He's describing the Christian life. He's describing a life of following Jesus as a disciple, and Paul's saying, I'm running a race. As a disciple of Jesus, as one following Christ, I'm running a race. And he says he hasn't arrived yet at the finish line. And so he's pressing on, eagerly pursuing the goal. He runs, he strains, he presses on. That's the metaphor of our text. Third, let's turn to the goal. As I noted, both sentences, verse 12 and verses 13 and 14, begin with a disclaimer. Let me share those again. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Now, determining what it is that Paul has not obtained, what it is that Paul has not yet taken hold of, certainly in verse 12, is not immediately apparent. Uh, I don't want to dive too deeply into the weeds of grammar. I might lose some of you, but uh, grammatically speaking, these two verbs in verse 12 do not actually have, uh, have an object to them. Um, what, what he has obtained, what he has taken hold of. So obtained, the NIV, provides for us all this, but, but even there we have to decide what, what is the all this getting at? What is it that Paul has not yet obtained? What is it that he, he has not yet taken hold of? In the inverse of the question is, then what is his goal? What is he trying to take hold of? What is he trying to obtain? Now, there are some who would read this passage, again, divorced from its context, and, and suggest or argue that Paul is talking about uh, Christian maturity, that he's not yet arrived, spiritually speaking, that there's room for growth. And certainly we can say that's true in his life. That's true for every one of our lives. I would say that's true for every Christian, that there is always room for growth in Christian maturity, growth in holiness. But I would contend uh, passionately that that's not what's going on here. Uh, likewise, there are some in our world who say, well, this is speaking about Christian perfection. 
Uh, some of you perhaps are familiar or you've heard uh, such expressions as entire sanctification or Christian perfectionism. There are, in fact, some church traditions and denominations that hold to the belief that a Christian can, in this life, achieve perfect holiness. Now, I would, I would contend passionately that they're wrong, and I'm not going to dive into that, but, but I would say, again, there's no indication in anything we've encountered in the letter to the Philippians yet that that's what's going on. And, and that fails to take into account what has happened just before this, uh, these verses. Let me remind you of what I noted earlier. Verses 12 to 14 do not begin something new. They carry on from what Paul has been saying. And if you were here last week, you'll recall that in those verses, Paul emphasized his goal Knowing Christ, knowing Christ, knowing the, the power of Christ's resurrection, the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is at work in our lives as believers. He, he wants to know the power of the resurrection in his life. He wants to participate in the sufferings of Christ, recognizing that as he suffers not just random suffering, but suffering because he is a follower of Christ, suffering on behalf of Christ, that God uses that to conform him into Christ's likeness. He reminded us that we follow a crucified Messiah, that as we follow Jesus faithfully, as we stand for the gospel, we will suffer for Christ. Remember the Philippians, these are believers in Christ who live in the colony of Philippi, this Roman colony, this, this city that is uniquely loyal to Rome. In, in a city where the people would regularly say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Every public function, Caesar is Lord. They would give honor to him, and Christians no longer do that because they've realized, they've learned that it's not Caesar who's Lord, it's Jesus who's Lord. And so they are beginning to face suffering. For Paul, he knows that Knowing Jesus means getting, uh, knowing, know, he wants to know Jesus. He wants to get in on the resurrection of, from the dead. And that whatever it costs, whatever suffering that he encounters along the way, it is worth it. And so we need to remember that that is the backdrop for what Paul says here. He wants to know Christ. He spoke of, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings. Not that I've already obtained all this or arrived at my goal. What is Paul longing for? What desire burns within him? To know Christ. To know Christ. To, to know Christ more deeply than he knows him now. Paul understands. Paul has been talking about how with the coming of Christ, the future has broken into the present. In the Jewish mindset, they always understood that the outpouring of God's spirit and resurrection was what would happen at the end. That was their eschatology. That was their understanding of the end. So when God would wrap up history, there would be outpouring of his spirit and resurrection. But what they didn't anticipate is that that end time would break into this present age. That, that didn't end history, that there's this overlap of ages that with Christ's resurrection and the outpouring of his spirit, the future has invaded the present. 
And so Paul's been speaking about what is true now, that through faith in Christ, they've been filled with the Spirit. They've experienced the power of the resurrection. The future has broken in. So already, already he knows Christ. Already he knows and experiences the resurrection power of God at work in his life. Already as he suffers on behalf of Christ, he is being conformed into the likeness of Christ. He knows Christ. He knows the surpassing worth of, of knowing Christ. But here is what he also recognizes. That though it is absolutely true that he already knows Christ, Paul knows that one day, one day when the end comes, when, when God brings history to its appointed end, when the future that has dawned arrives in all its fullness, he knows that he will know Christ then in a way that he presently does not know him. And Paul longs for that day. He longs to know Christ. Remember earlier in the letter when he said, when he's in prison, describing what he's going through the Philippians, and he says, I don't know what I want, because if I die, if they kill me, then I'm with Christ. And he says, that's to be preferred, but I don't know what God will do. If, if I live, I'll serve Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. Paul's desire is to know Christ in all, his, in all its fullness, and he knows that day lies in the future. But he longs for it. He desires it. There is a danger that we face I'll get there, sorry. Paul's desire, Paul's goal is to know Christ in all its fullness. Let's turn to the fourth thing, Paul's response. How does he respond? What, what does it look like in his life as he, he lives in light of that goal? Uh, before, I want to draw your attention to that, but first I want to highlight an important theological truth that, that Paul uh, notes in the midst of these verses. Uh, listen to what Paul says at the end of verse 12. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus took hold of me. Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar, writes this. Paul's point, as always, is that Christ's work is the prior one. And that all his own effort is simply in response to and for the sake of that prior apprehension of him by Christ Jesus my Lord. Christ's work is first. There's a, a bit later in verse 14, Paul's going to say, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. He speaks of Christ apprehending him, of God calling him. There, there's a danger that we misread a passage like this one because in a moment we're going to look at Paul's response, which is, is about effort. And we can read this and think that somehow this is this is about works righteousness, that we have to perform something to get in right with God to secure our eventual resurrection and presence in Jesus' presence. But, but that is to miss what's been going on, and it's to misread here. If you've been with us, you'll recall Philippians uh, chapter 2, that, that we're called to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we can, we can get that sense too. Oh no, it's calling us to effort, it's calling us to strive, to make every effort. But what I said to you then, I say to you again now, this is not about how to be saved. It's about how saved people are to live. This is about what a, a life of a disciple of Jesus looks like. The same is true of this text. Paul will strain, he will strive, he will press on 
not in order that he would be saved, not in order to make his salvation secure, but because he is already saved and he longs for Jesus. The fact of God's prior work is consistently emphasized. Earlier in this letter, Paul said, Philippians 1.6, he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Earlier in this section of Philippians chapter 3, Paul has already gone to great lengths to say my pedigree and my performance. And Paul, remember, he, he had good credentials. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a, a very observant Pharisee. But he says, all of that I count as rubbish, as dung, for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, being found in him through a righteousness that comes from God, not my own. So Paul has been so clear that, that his salvation is a gift of God. It's not, it's not based on his performance. He hasn't earned it. He's not secure because of it. So we need to, to bear that in mind. Now, let's look at Paul's response. What is he, how does he live in light of the goal that he has of knowing Christ? Look with me again at verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read this. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In my introduction, I said to you that Paul is very intentional with, with regards to what he's aiming at. Right? I, I, I get a bucket of balls at the driving range and I just swing away. Paul is not doing anything half-baked like that. Paul in his life of following Jesus is very intentional. And I want to I look at, you, at him, his response with you, and notice three things. First, I want you to notice Paul's concentration. Look, he says, but one thing I do, one thing I do. Paul's life, his, his eyes are fixed on the goal, on knowing Jesus Knowing him now, but knowing him one day in fullness when the eschaton comes at the end, when Christ returns. This isn't the only place we hear Paul speaking this way. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. Paul has set dead aim. He knows what he wants. He knows where he's aimed. He wants to know Christ. He wants to know Christ now. He wants to know Christ when, when the end comes. His eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus. He's looking forward to that day when he will stand in Christ's presence and he will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul is utterly concentrated on the goal, a knowing Christ. He, he says, forgetting what is behind. What does that mean? When Paul says forgetting what is behind, he, he doesn't forget all that has gone on in the past. He doesn't forget God's goodness. He doesn't forget the things God has taught him. He doesn't even forget his own past sinfulness, his rebellion as a persecutor of the church. We know that because in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul will write uh, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So what does Paul mean when he says forgetting what is behind? He simply means that, remember this is a metaphor, that he forgets about anything that would distract him from the goal, from knowing Christ. Perhaps that is a bit of a, a parting shot at anyone in Philippi or anyone beyond who, who would say that there is value, there is worth in Torah observance and circumcision. He's saying, I forget, I forget about those things, those things that would distract me from Christ. Forget what is behind. 
Second, I want you to notice Paul's determination. Listen again to the language of Paul. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I've had the privilege of coaching basketball at the junior high here for about a decade. And one of the things, probably the thing that I find most challenging is not a lack of skill. I can teach skill. And in fact, the problem often is with some of the players who are most skilled. What I find incredibly challenging and difficult is, is when there's not that drive, right? Like, go for the ball, want it. Effort, strive, strain, right? Exert yourself. How do, you, how, do you, how do you teach that? I haven't figured that out yet as a basketball coach. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. He is determined. And his determination to pursue Christ, to strain towards the goal, is, is not about him being insecure about his future. His future is certain. He knows that. It, it's, it's that. In the present, he will pour himself out, pressing on toward the goal. In, in other words, Paul's present life, his following Jesus now, is shaped by his future, knowing that he will be with Christ so there's this determined pursuit of Christ. Third, I want you to notice Paul's motivation. What was it that drove Paul towards this goal? It was to win the prize, and the prize was Christ. Knowing Christ one day in all its fullness. We see throughout Scripture that because of our sinfulness, we cannot look upon God in all His holiness. We see that in the story of Moses and Israel. That we cannot look upon God because if we would do that, we would die. And yet, the biblical narrative ends this way in Revelation chapter 22. Speaking of those who are in Christ, we will see His face. We will see His face. We will know Christ in a way that we don't yet know Him. Yes, we can know Him now, but there is a day when we will stand before the one who gave His life for you. The one who loves you with a greater love than you understand. The one who has called you to himself. The one who is calling even now to those who don't know him. He loves you. He died for you. And one day, through faith, you can stand before him. And you will see his face. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the motivation. Paul wants to know Christ. If you're not a Christian, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand the good news that is proclaimed in Scripture. Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up, making yourself right with God. It's not about trying hard enough in order to secure something. Christianity, the good news is that, that Jesus in His love for us came, that He bore the penalty that, that you and I deserve. He suffered for our sins is how the Bible puts it. But not only that, he doesn't just forgive us and cleanse us, washing us, making us new, but he clothes us with his perfect righteousness. We get credit for Christ's obedience to the Father. And so in that moment when we surrender to him and say, Jesus, I, I need you. I repent. I turn from my sin. I need you. I can't fix myself. We come empty-handed and Christ forgives us and Christ clothes us and we are adopted, and our future is secure. We're filled with his spirit, and, and the future is secure, and you, you don't have to do anything to secure it. You don't have to do anything to make him love you more, because he can't. 
But here's Paul's point. That's the reality. That's the gospel. Where Christianity, where we're called to engage, to strain towards the goal, to make every effort, it's, it's not something we do in order to get God's love, in order to get God's acceptance. That has been bought in Christ. It is because we long for Christ. We, we, we live that way in response. We engage in this race, forgetting what is behind, pressing on towards the goal to receive the prize. And the prize is Christ himself. Paul is motivated. Paul is motivated by his wonder of God. Not by fear. Not by guilt. He's motivated by the beauty of God's amazing love. God's amazing grace. And he's so drawn to Christ that he will pour out his life for pursuing Christ. And remember, he's writing to the Philippians who are in a place where they're suffering and they're, they're tempted to try and avoid it. And he's saying, run the race. Run, forget what's behind. There's no greater joy, there's no greater prize than knowing Christ and we can know him now, but one day you will know him in all fullness. Just run. Run for all your worth. Paul wants to spur them on. He wants to encourage them to fix their eyes on Christ, to not be distracted by lesser things. Jesus would be at the center, that Jesus would be the one that they pursue with everything they've got, and that no matter what suffering comes, and even if death comes, that, that those things cannot derail them in that pursuit. Paul's personal example is a paradigm for us, paradigm of the Christian life. This is what Christian living, this is what a life of discipleship looks like. Not just for Paul, Paul for, but for each of us. So my question to you this morning, the question that we all need to ask is, what are you pursuing? What are you aiming for? Because it's, it's easy. It's easy to take Jesus for granted. It's easy to say, well, I put my faith in him, and now I'm, I'm just kind of whacking balls. Like, I'm, I'm not really aiming at anything. And, and if that's true, I, I, I want to I show you this morning, I want you to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, who is the prize. And I want to say to you, let's run. Let's, let's forget what is behind. Let's forget those things that would distract us. And let's pursue Jesus, the one who loves us, the one who gave himself for us. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to toward the goal, to win the prize. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the beauty of who you are, for the abundance of your grace and your love. We thank you, Jesus, for your work calling us to yourself. And, and I pray this morning for anyone who is with us here or online who, who don't yet know you, Lord, that, that you would open their ears to hear your call this morning. Lord, I pray for us who know you already, where we have perhaps just been cruising, just not really aimed at, at anything, where we have lived with 
a lack of intentionality. I pray, Jesus, that you would bring conviction and, and that you would inspire us to joyfully pursue you. Jesus, you are, you are the prize. And knowing you is of surpassing greatness, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would know you and that we would pursue you. In your name I pray, amen.